It is often said that there are not enough strong female characters in cinema. While it is important to ensure that we certainly have fewer weak female characters, filmmakers and critics alike often mistake strong characters for strongly drawn characters. A strongly drawn character is one where we can see the reason for their behaviour. The motivation has a clearly defined silhouette. Their actions may be morally dubious, but their motivations are not. We're murderers, Francis. No, we're not. We're survivors. If we can't show some respect for one brave man and still accomplish what we set out to do, then I'm disappointed in both of us. I should have never made you ambassador. I should have never made you president. Lacking a clear outline, weakly drawn characters collapse to the point where their actions are inconsistent. That's when characters do things because the plot needs certain things to be done. The writer loses sight of who the character is supposed to be, the actor can't get a handle on what the character really wants, and the performance suffers as a consequence. Which leaves us with strong characters. For me, strong characters are boring. Strong characters always win. The outcome of every contest is a foregone conclusion. Whether the character is male or female, placing him or her at their emotional limit makes them vulnerable. Because that limit, the self-doubt, is the arena of the character's internal conflict. And that doubt, that vulnerability, generates the uncertainty as to whether the character will succeed or fail, endure or perish. It is only by overcoming the doubt, overcoming the vulnerability, that the character becomes strong. Drama is about change. A character either strengthens or weakens, overcomes fear or succumbs to a flaw. When, in 1988, Thomas Harris published The Silence of the Lambs, he created a character that broke new ground. Not an FBI agent, but rather a trainee, the character was female and deeply ambitious. And Clarice Starling's ambition meant that she was always pushing herself to her limit, perhaps beyond her emotional threshold. That threshold is laid out repeatedly in the film's early scenes. We first see Starling as she, very significantly, runs through the training course on her own. Up steep hills, over obstacles, past signs nailed to trees that read hurt, agony, pain, love it or die. This is Little Red Riding Hood finding her way through the forest. Then, summoned to see Jack Crawford, Starling passes along staircases, elevators and corridors before finally making it to Crawford's office. But that is nothing in comparison to the number of thresholds she crosses when she goes to first meet Hannibal Lecter. Study those sequences and you will find they both foreshadow the story's climax, when Starling penetrates Buffalo Bill's house and basement. Catherine Martin! Yes! FBI! You're safe! At the beginning, Crawford asks Starling whether she scares easily. But while Starling goes to the limits of her fear, I can assure you that if Thomas Harris had made his protagonist male, named him Clarence or Carl Starling, back in the late 80s and early 90s, Tom Cruise or Denzel Washington would likely have played the lead. And the outcome? That would have been a foregone conclusion, because strong is boring. Thomas knew this because in his earlier novel, Red Dragon, the protagonist was Will Graham. 
Graham is a former FBI agent who was asked to assist in the case of the Tooth Fairy serial killer. Highly revered by the FBI, Graham is recovering from a mental breakdown suffered on a previous case when, in pursuit of Hannibal Lecter, he was attacked by the cannibalistic doctor. Intriguing as Harris's novel was, it lacked the compelling combination that he assembled for Silence of the Lambs. Here is Jodie Foster speaking at the BFI in 2016. For me, that was the most exciting thing, was to say, you know, we're going to take a classic human myth and ask ourselves, why in the hell has this been only reserved for men? For me, the reason that it was so important to make this movie was that there was a sort of healing process and almost like a growing up process to finally playing the woman who saves the women. And um, that woman who is saving the woman sees a reflection of herself in the women that she's trying to save. So for all the writers, good drama is not about plot or strong characters, but rather mapping the emotional limits of your strongly drawn characters. Proof of this is when Hannibal interrogates Starling about her childhood. In those exchanges, we come to see Starling's vulnerability. The question is whether she will be able to move beyond her self-doubt. And her self-doubt is her emotional limit. After your father's murder, you were orphaned. You were 10 years old. You went to live with cousins on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana. And? And one morning, I just ran away. Like many classic films, The Silence of the Lambs almost didn't happen on several occasions. Thomas Harris had begun his career as a crime reporter with the Associated Press, working in New York, where he earned a reputation as an investigative journalist with an eye for the details on police procedure and an instinct for the psychological motivations of the criminal. Viewing the crimes from both sides, police and perpetrator, led Harris to write his first novel, Black Sunday about the FBI trying to prevent a Palestinian terrorist attack on American soil. The book didn't sell that many copies, but that hardly mattered because it sold to a Hollywood studio and was turned into a hit film starring Robert Shaw and Bruce Dern, directed by John Frankenheimer. That success allowed Harris to focus exclusively on writing novels. Red Dragon followed and was turned into a movie, Manhunter, starring William Peterson and Brian Cox, directed by Michael Mann. The movie flopped, and so by the time Harris published The Silence of the Lambs, two years later, no studio would touch it. The same year that The Silence of the Lambs published was the same year Gene Hackman earned his third Oscar nomination for his performance in Mississippi Burning. There he played the streetwise FBI agent Rupert Anderson, investigating the disappearance of three civil rights workers in 1964. Alan Parker's drama drew a lot of criticism, but it was a commercial hit, earning back three times its production costs for Orion Pictures. Hackman read Harris's book, liked it, and purchased the movie rights and turned to Orion Pictures for financing. Orion agreed and hired award-winning playwright Ted Talley to tackle the adaptation. Hackman had no intention of playing Hannibal Lecter. Instead, he wanted the film to be his directorial debut and perhaps take the role of Jack Crawford, who heads up the FBI's behavioral science unit. But then, one of Hackman's daughters read the book and expressed to him her deep reservations about its level of violence. Suddenly, Hackman dropped out and it looked like the project was dead, which left Tally in a state of limbo, 
because he had not yet completed, let alone turned in, his first draft. Here is Tally talking at the Austin Film Festival in 2012. Given the subject matter of this ghoulish movie, in a weird sort of way, it was incredibly important that it be tasteful. I mean, people think of that as a horribly violent movie, and it, it does have some horrible moments, but there's almost no literal on-screen violence in that movie. Um, it's always happening just out of your eyesight. Um, when, when the prison warden is trying to impress Jodie Foster with how horrible Hannibal Lecter is, he shows her the photograph yeah. of a nurse that he attacked. You don't see the photograph. You only see her reaction. Tally's main challenge was to not portray the violence, but to maintain its threat. Thankfully, he found a sympathetic collaborator in the film's newly appointed director, Jonathan Demme. It was Demi who encouraged Tally to not so much get inside the characters' heads as, quote, get inside the audience's imagination. We have to let them do the work, he said. We can't shove this stuff in their face. Here is Demi in interview with BBC's Mark Cousins in a very noisy New York, explaining how he got inside the audience's imagination. Well, first, the, the idea, I, I definitely wanted to use subjective camera style where you the audience is placed in the shoes of the characters which which is of course a, a technique that that Hitchcock sort of legitimized and capitalized on and and there's sort of these moments in Hitchcock movies where it cuts the point of view it works putting the audience in the shoe uh, in the characters shoes uh, there you are it's got to be intensifying I believe um, and what I love is that not many people seem to notice it or comment on it it's fairly seamless um, with with that sequence um, we wanted uh, uh, huge close-ups of, of these two every time uh, they're together because after all, as, as Scott Glenn says, don't let Dr. Lecter inside your head. For me, this is the main reason why the film works. The Silence of the Lambs is a unique fusion of the detective and horror genres. For a variety of reasons, the horror genre has prioritised the male point of view, with the camera often placed in the position of the male killer. And on those occasions, the victim was almost exclusively female. Robert C. Max's The Spiral Staircase, Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, John Carpenter's Halloween, Brian De Palma's Body Double, they all replicate that idea. Add to that the reality that until the arrival of Clarice Starling, the protagonist in a detective film was almost exclusively male. And since detecting is almost exclusively looking, the male point of view is only doubled. But what Demi understood was that with Starling as the protagonist, he had a unique opportunity to completely overturn audience identification. But for all of Demi's clarity of vision, his preferred leading lady, Michelle Pfeiffer, with whom he had just made Married to the Mob, was unconvinced. Like Hackman's daughter, Pfeiffer was overwhelmed by the level of violence. So she bowed out, and finally, after much vigorous lobbying, Jodie Foster landed the role. Still, there remained the small matter of casting Hannibal Lecter. American actors such as Robert Duvall, Dustin Hoffman and Morgan Freeman were considered. Then Sean Connery was offered the part. He reacted the same way as Pfeiffer. But again, Demi had a different take. Here is Anthony Hopkins in an interview with BBC's Barry Norman in 1993. I think what's fascinating about roles like Lecter and Lambert Leroux, which I played the National Pravda, um, and I've played Hitler, 
but I, I think it's the certainty within them that's attractive. The unblinkered look into the darkness that is fascinating. And uh, I, think I, I think I understand that for some reason. I wouldn't really like to be like that, but they, they are fascinating to play. You get, a, you get a chance to play that part of your personality for once, you know, 10 seconds on a film or on stage for a few hours. While Starling has to break through her self-doubt, Lecter has no concern with his limits. In Freudian terms, he is the id, the deepest, darkest depths of the subconscious that have exploded into civilized society. He represents unbridled desire, a character type that has ripped loose from his emotional limit and in so doing has unleashed a monster intent on satisfying his unsated, insatiable lust to devour human flesh. Whereas at the start of the film, Starling has not yet broken beyond the limits of her fear, Lecter has long since done so, and the only thing holding him back now is an external obstacle. I've been in this room for eight years now, Clarice. I know they will never ever let me out while I'm alive. But even after filming was complete and the post-production was all but done, The Silence of the Lambs had one final hurdle to surmount. Demi and his producers Kenneth Ott, Edward Saxon and Ron Bosman felt very confident that they had made a very good picture. But despite that conviction, they elected to hold not so much a test preview with the public, but rather a screening for people within the industry. Feedback was extremely positive. Then came a call from legendary screenwriter William Goldman. Goldman was phoning to congratulate Demi, but with one caveat. A sequence late in the picture had jolted Goldman right out of the story. After Lecter escapes, Crawford and Starling are hauled before Hayden Burke, the director of the FBI. Crawford is booted off the investigation and Starling is expelled from the academy. And as they leave, they get into a blistering argument. Despite Crawford's warnings, Starling just can't let go of the case. Goldman felt that this was little more than exposition to launch the third act. Its inclusion, he pointed out, held up the momentum of the picture, that it interrupted the flow of the story. Initially skeptical, Demi decided to rewatch the film with his editor Craig McKay, this time with that sequence taken out. And they realised Goldman was right. The sequence was deleted, and upon its release, and ever since, there has never been a single viewer who said, you know what the story really needs? A moment where Starling is kicked out of the academy. That would be a great emotional threshold for her to overcome. The Silence of the Lambs was almost universally praised upon its release in 1991. Now, over a quarter of a century later, in an age where the female perspective is becoming increasingly visible in cinema, it is obvious that its significance will only increase. Special element. 